Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Shannon Waller, and this is Inside Strategic Coach. And Shannon, before we started today, we went down a list of things that we could talk about, and the list keeps growing. But today we're going to talk about what has been written up as the first law of lifetime growth in the book, The Laws of Lifetime Growth, and that law is always make your future bigger than your past. Yes. So the question we're going to talk about today is why do entrepreneurs always need a bigger future than their past? And we're going to talk about a few different angles or perspectives. But one of them is that our past can get really, really big and they can actually overwhelm our future Mm -hmm. or people can run out of future. Let's jump in and talk about that, Dan. So what do you notice with entrepreneurs who have sort of run out of future? Because we've seen that a bit. Well, it's very, very interesting because I've had the experience of 20-year-olds in Strategic Coach, and I right now have the experience of 80-year-olds in Strategic Coach. So I know that there's at least a 60- or 70-year time frame in the normal circumstances that people can be entrepreneurs. If you take a look at the 80-year-olds, first of all, they're enthusiastic, they're excited, They're doing very, very interesting work, and you say, well, what was it about this individual that, first of all, took them way, way past the time when most people think you retire from what you're doing? They're a good 20 years, sometimes 25 years beyond when most people say, well, this is a work life. You start checking out when you're late 50s, certainly not beyond 70 And you go back and you say, well, how would you compare the 80-year-old to the 20-year-old? And the 20-year-old has one, what I'd say, advantage that the 80-year-old doesn't have, and that is the 20-year-old doesn't have much past. Not only that, but they've gotten a lot of support from our society. I'm talking about, you know, in the advanced countries or basically modern economies and There's lots of work and lots of different variety of work to do, and people can choose what they want to do for a living. So children are pushed by their parents. They're pushed by the educational system. And there's a real active interest on the part of people in charge of society to actually treat the young people as an investment. And we're going to invest a lot of education. We're going to invest training. We're going to invest a lot of thinking about what you can do when you're finished with your education. And so to a certain extent, they have a future that's bigger than their past, but it's not necessarily their future that they've actually created. It's a future that other people told them they're going to have. They told them what to study. They told them how to develop themselves for when they get out of the educational system and get into the workforce. So I would say up till about 30, the future that most entrepreneurs even have was a future that wasn't really designed by them. It was mostly designed by other people. I mean, there's an interesting statistic that in the United States, I think the number is 36 years old. 36 years old is where even an engaged young person who is very, very active and is ambitious and is doing good work, 36 is the crossover point where what they're contributing back to society is now starting to be greater than what society has contributed to them. So you're at a net zero at age 36. It's the crossover point. 
So basically your life up until 36 has been people footing the bill for you and giving you a push. But after that, you pretty well have to do it on your own. And that requires that you take over the entire job in your own mind, creating your own future. And instead of other people giving you guidance and other people giving you direction, at that point, you've got to start plotting out the future for your past. And by 36 also, you've accumulated quite a bit of past. And we all know the story of going home to high school reunions or college reunions and running into people who are more or less attempting to be a lifetime student or a lifetime adolescent or a lifetime 20-year-old, even when they're in their 40s and 50s. And these are just the people for whom they didn't want to accept the responsibility for creating their own future, okay? But entrepreneurs, to a certain extent, by the very nature of the decision to become an entrepreneur, which is basically saying, I'm going to take care of myself financially, and I'm going to be responsible for creating my own opportunities, progress much more quickly than people who are in job situations in terms of actually growing internally. You can grow externally in the sense that you are getting job positions and you're getting paid and everything else, but for internal growth, you necessarily have to take 100% responsibility for your own personal growth as an individual, not as a particular type of job holder or a particular type of specialty or anything, but just in terms of being a person that you have to take 100% responsibility for that. So what happens then is that you're going to go forward in society and as other people are coming to the natural end of their occupational life, they're thinking that their past is getting much bigger than their future. You know, let's say you're at 35, you probably have 25 years ahead of you, okay? 25, 30 years ahead of you. When you get to 50, you have 15 years ahead of you. When you get to 60, you're five years, and when you're 65, you have no future ahead of you except enjoying your savings and enjoying your investments because in your mind, there's no more future as far as work goes. That is true for people who are in organizations, you know, corporations or bureaucracies where there's mandatory retirement. So a lot of their life is about getting ready for that cutoff point. But entrepreneurs, by their very nature, don't have to have that cutoff point. Although a lot of them hang out with people who retire and therefore they feel they should retire too. For example, myself, I said this on a previous podcast, but my ambition and my motivation for business growth is incomparably bigger at age 72 than it was at age 47. And that's because I really work on always having a future bigger than my past. Thank you, Dan. There's another group of people, too, that I see who aren't necessarily at that age group, but they had an original set of goals that they were really Mm -hmm. aspiring to. They were working hard, and they get there, and then they look kind of like they've run out of Mm -hmm. future. Can you just talk to that for a moment? Yeah, it usually happens around 40 or 45, somewhere in the 40 to 50 decade. And I notice that people, you know, they had big goals when they started in. We'll specifically talk about entrepreneurs here because I think entrepreneurship, for the most part, is factory equipment. I think people are 
more or less born with this instinct for being on their own. I think people can be thrown into this situation, but not willingly. The real entrepreneurs are the ones who willingly go out on their own and couldn't think of doing anything different from that. And they're not employable by anyone else anyway. Yeah, they really don't take well to being told how to spend their time and what kind of results they can get. That's not really part of their makeup. But what I've noticed is that there's like a 20-year growth plan, and a lot of it, Shannon, and you've talked to as many entrepreneurs in person as I have over the last 25 years, that it has a lot to do with a set of external achievements, income being one of them, and then what kind of impact they're making in the marketplace, what their reputation is, what kind of team they have around them, what kind of market share do they have. So these are all external markers. These are observable by someone from outside of them. And then they have a lot of personal stuff, who their partner is going to be in life and what's the lifestyle and if there's children, who are the children going to be and what's the schooling going to be and where's the house, what kind of house is it. You know, so there's all these external things. And a really talented, successful entrepreneur, skillful, is probably going to start hitting these around 45 or 50. What I notice then is that there's enormous drop-off in motivation. I notice that there's a enormous drop-off in engagement with their work, and gradually they start moving to lifestyle, and could be philanthropic, it could be community-based prestige, community-based status, but it, the focus is no longer inside the business, and they're not really interested in new ideas. They're not really interested in new markets. They're not really interested in them developing new skills, having much greater teamwork than they did, so they hit this wall. The reason is that the big future they had, they just had one of them. Mm. And they got to the end of the one big future, and they've run out of future. That seems like a very uncomfortable place to be. So this is the thing I'm kind of burning to ask now, is how do people create a bigger future? And how do they not get overwhelmed by their, albeit very successful, past? It's a great question because it isn't a one-time affair. For me, creating a bigger future is a daily exercise. My next quarter is going to be bigger than this quarter. And I tend to work in quarters, 90 days, because my belief is that when you motivate yourself in terms of very specific things you're going to get done, I believe that we have about a 90-day supply of motivation. That if you don't accomplish certain very, very key achievements in a 90-day period, you won't have energy for these achievements after the 90-day period. So I plan everything in 90 days, and I also plan everything in 25 years. So when I was 70, I established a framework for thinking about my future in terms of how I was going to be when I was 95 years old. And in my mind, I was going to be much more skillful. The company was going to be much bigger. My role in the company was still going to be as an idea creator. My coaching abilities were going to be a lot better, but we were going to be surrounded by massively more teamwork and technology than when I was 70. 
this gets worked on, you know, on a quarterly basis, but it gets worked on on a continual daily basis. One of my guiding thoughts as I live each day is the thing I'm doing today, if I do it, will it get bigger in the future? Okay, if I do it once, will it continue to get bigger? And that's why I put such emphasis in Strategic Coach on teamwork and technology, because you put something in place, and then that something keeps getting bigger and better as you go forward. So I'm always looking for the exponential. I'm always looking for the activities. So on the one hand, you have a big vision, but on the other hand, the very behavior, the very attitudes that you have on a daily basis are also you're looking for a bigger future. You want next week to be bigger than this week. You want the next time you do this, that the result will be bigger and better than the result you're getting out of it right now. I think that is such a fascinating question to always ask ourselves, which is, will it get bigger in the future? Mm -hmm. And always paying attention to the exponential. People are always talking about scale and scalability. Well, you've just got to the very heart of the matter. And for you, it's always wrapped around teamwork and technology. Mm -hmm. That's very useful guidance yeah. and direction, I feel like. The thing I have a problem with scalability is that it's very abstract. What does it mean? It's not a word that easily explains itself. Well, I've got scale. Well, what's that mean? But I use four words to replace scalability, and actually exponential is not that clear either. And that is that everything you're doing is being done faster, easier, cheaper, and you're getting a bigger result out of it, regardless of what it is. It's faster, easier, cheaper, and bigger. And everybody understands that. And there's very precise measurements that you can put to each of those four things. It's all measurable. I think that's the big thing. So I've been living so much easily since my 20s in a daily mode that I'm investing now for a bigger payoff later. And I always expect the life ahead to be much bigger, more exciting, more motivating, more engaging, fascinating than anything that I've achieved in the past. And what that allows me to do, Shannon, is to completely recontextualize my past. Because my past is not something to go back to because you can't. But it is something that you can continually look at again from the standpoint of lessons, things that you did back then, which if you can just pull them apart from the actual experience, there's enormous lessons which are applicable to the future. So I'm always maximizing the value of my past as I go forward. And the reason is that I have all this memory and I have all this experience and I see it as raw material. I can go back and I can reuse experiences from my past. I can think about them differently. I can learn lessons from them. I can derive new sets of rules and new laws by looking at the past. So it's a very strange thing is that your past doesn't really become useful to you until you have a future that's bigger. That is completely and totally fascinating. <laughs> I love that. And I think you've done this. I think you've told me about this. Where you actually created a list of a hundred different experiences in your life, and then you went through and distilled down the lessons for mm -hmm. every one of them. Mm. I think for a lot of people, myself included, sometimes we just have an event in the past that just kind of sits there, mm -hmm. and we kind of avoid it or not, but we don't actually deal with it, or not in a way that actually supports and enhances our future. So tell me more about that list and that process you've gone through. 
anybody knows what eating food that is hard to digest does to your physical energy and your sense of motivation. I mean, you almost become lethargic and you just don't have any energy for anything. And I think instead of undigested food, I'm thinking about undigested experience, that most people have a vast amount of undigested experience. And what I mean by that is that they never got the lesson from the experience. There's kind of an emotional trap that they have from actually going through the experience. They keep wanting to go back to that experience in some physical way, and you can't. There's no going back physically to anything that we had, but there is a way of going back conceptually. There's a way of going back, rethinking the experience again, and making the experience useful in your mind, not useful for the past, but useful for the future. So my past has been continually transformed. So things which maybe 40 years ago I thought was a very painful, very frustrating setback in my life. Actually, when I really took a look at it and took a look at what worked about it and what didn't work about it, and if I were to approach that situation again in the future, I began to see, oh, I would do this differently, I would do this differently, I would do this differently. And I've done this, I would say, thousands of times. So my natural brain process is to take any experience and squeeze the value out of it and leave the non-valuable part of the experience back there. I don't have to remember it anymore because I've got the lesson and I can use it in the future. So I am very lightweight in terms of memory at age 72. I'm just very lightweight. There's nothing I need to go back to except for learning. There's no need to revisit any experience except for the learning. And I can do that right now. I can do that right here. I don't have to make a trip. I don't have to go back and look up people or anything like that. I don't have to do any of that because it's my own thinking process. I love it. It also means to me that if you're having experience that is not to your liking or what you thought Mm -hmm. was going to happen, knowing that you can distill the lessons and make it useful to your future actually takes a lot of the pain or the sting out of that circumstance now. I see people who are angry, people who are sort of habitually angry. They're habitually angry over experiences that in some cases may be 30 or 40 years old, and they just can't get over the experience because they still think that something is owed to them by the experience. They were cheated by the experience. Experience is just experience. When you're walking down the sidewalk on a rainy day and a car comes by and hits a puddle and it splashes you and you get very angry at the driver, well, guess what? The driver didn't even know you were there and wasn't even thinking about you. You know, it just happened. It was a rainy day. There were puddles. He was going at a speed. Well, a lot of life is like that. It just happens. The meaning of life is the meaning that we attach to the experience. That's entirely a creative activity. The past did not happen the way you remember it, okay? The past happened the way you interpret it. And everything I've ever been upset about, depressed about, when I went back and revisited it for the purpose of extracting principles, all that negativity disappeared the moment I had the lesson. And the moment I had the lesson, I didn't have to go back to that experience again. Dan, you talk about your education Mm -hmm. at St. John's in this perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you share that? Because you've learned some really powerful things there, and you don't need to go back anymore. Yeah, and I've had 
16 years of formal education, and I've gotten a lot out of it. I have no beefs about my education at all. There's this sort of modern-day angst about education and how they didn't treat you like an individual. Well, the system isn't designed to treat you like an individual. The system is designed to move certain values of society from one generation or another and hope that you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, if we invest enough education, you'll turn out to be something. So I've gone back, but one particular experience I had was a very unique college that I went to, and it is a unique college. It's called St. John's, very small, 300 students, two campuses, one in Annapolis, Maryland, and one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the entire program is exactly the same for everybody. What the program is that you read and discuss what are called the great books of the Western world, okay? And this is about 100 books that more or less over centuries people have said these books are better than other books. And if you read these books, typical names, Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, and then sciences, Euclid, Ptolemy, Descartes, Newton. So there's a whole series of books. And the Western civilization has what's called a great conversation in that if you look at other parts of the world, whether it's Africa or Asia or any other part, but it's basically Europe, North America, and then everything that the British touched, all the different countries, there's actually a conversation that goes on, and it's about a 3,000-year-old conversation where we are continually picking up the thinking of people who lived a long time ago, and we're discussing it as if we're discussing it with them. And St. John's aspires to this, what's called a great conversation. But it kind of made me angry while I was there, the actual experience, because I had a feeling that it was very inward-looking, the college, and instead of taking these great ideas or the results of thinking about them and going out into the world and actually improve things, it was almost like it was that they were protecting their great books experience and seeing themselves as cut off from the world. I really noticed that while I was there. I really noticed it among the faculty. I noticed it among the students that there was sort of otherworldliness and that we have this precious little place where we, we and we alone get to discuss the great books. And I could never see that because I'm very active and very practical. So it took me a long time to kind of get through this experience, but then I went back one day, and this is fairly recent. This is about five years ago. What I did is that I said, well, what did I actually learn at St. John's? Quite apart from the books, because you can read the books. I mean, the books are listed, and anybody can read the books. But what I learned is that St. John's had really mastered a great learning experience. So there's five things. The first one is you have a great idea, and then great questions are asked about the great ideas. That's number two. Number three is there's great discussions about the questions and the ideas. And number four is you have great facilitators. And St. John's had very skillful faculty members who could ask an initial question at 7 o'clock, and by 9.30 they were still involved in the discussion around that original question. It was very skillful. And then the fifth thing was that you would take the learning from one discussion and you would move it on to another discussion. It really struck me that this was a phenomenal learning experience. 
But it didn't depend upon St. John's. It didn't depend upon the great books. There's lots of great ideas in the world. You can ask really great questions about those ideas, and you can have great discussions, and you can develop great facilitators around it, and you can create this jumping-off point. And a lot of this really went into my thinking about how the program in the Strategic Coach really gained a lot from my understanding of the program at St. John's. That's it. And once I got clear about those five things, all thought of having to go back to the college or anything else or go back for reunions or be in touch with the college at all just disappeared. I didn't have any need. I had learned what I needed to learn. It took me a long time to get through the fact that I was angry because I wasn't going to get free of the place. I recognized right off the bat that whether this is conscious or unconscious, I don't know, but I had a feeling that they wanted to hook you and keep you forever, keep you coming back, and I was angry about that, that I wasn't seeing my way free of that. And the moment I got my five lessons, in 24 hours, it was all gone. And now I design everything going forward on those five principles that I gained from St. John's. That's such a great example of making your past smaller and more useful. Yeah. And I love knowing that that's the basis for strategic yeah. coach program. That's the program. You know, the program is great ideas. We have great entrepreneurial ideas. We have great questions for all the entrepreneurs. We have great discussions. Our coaches are great facilitators and knowledge builds on knowledge. Insights build on insights. And so it was worth the four years there and my 35 years of anger to get to that understanding. I love it. Last point I want to touch on, Dan, about having a bigger future. And you sort of, again, mentioned this when you were talking about when you were 70, figuring out your next 25 years, is the impact that it has on other people, on your team, and the direction it gives. And I know, because I was in the meeting where you shared your bigger future, Mm -hmm. what a positive impact it had of charging people with the energy for this bigger future that you have. Mm -hmm. And without that leadership or direction, who knows, really? Mm -hmm. First of all, I've had a lot of experience. I'm 43 years as a coach. I was born during the Second World War, just before the invasion of Normandy. So I've got a lot of life experience. I've got a lot of historical experience in my life. And the fact that I at my age, with all this experience, and more motivated and more excited about what lies ahead, I think is a very, very crucial leadership role on my part. I don't really need to know what people are thinking about it because I think it has a great impact without me specifically knowing what impact it has. First of all, I think I'm unusual in this respect, but I don't think I'm unusual in a way that other people couldn't be unusual this way. But it comes back to the premise of this talk, which is that you have to be someone who's always making your future bigger than your past. Talk to me about that, Shannon, because I'm going on these long monologues. But talk to me about at what stage did this become noticeably different than the way you noticed other people your own age were approaching their life? There's a point at where other people your age You've been here 25 years, but even other people in the company or where you saw this shift that your future could always be bigger than your past. Mm -hmm. 
I can't identify when it happened, but I know that if I'm in a conversation and someone's talking about maintaining or cycling down in terms of their career, I look at them a little bit like, what's wrong with you? Because <laughs> my mindset is so different. And I live with and work with you and with Babs. So for me, it's, at this point, it's factory installed or it's part mm-hmm. of my DNA. And the part that I really love and appreciate about it is that I can look at any experience and know that the value of it or it's really the interpretation of the experience in my past, I can make it more useful. Mm-hmm. So that skill, that ability, the mindset to make use of the past actually feeds my bigger future. And so my future is massive as far as I'm concerned. I have lots to learn to get it there, but I'm excited by having a bigger future. Mm -hmm. And I'm at this point 51, so you know, I'm not 20 anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm super excited about my future. And Mm -hmm. I have an interesting circumstance in that my husband has just retired from corporate life. He's not retired in the bigger sense of the word, but retired from corporate life. People were talking to me recently and they said, well, what about you? I'm like, well, why? I'm not. I'm not retiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why would I ever do that? That would be really boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because what I'm focusing on is just doing what I love to do, things that make a difference, that pay well, that are a contribution to me and to others. And why would I stop? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just too much fun. And with, look at the people with whom I get to do it. So, even in a very general sense, that's what I aspire to, and that's what I appreciate. And I don't see an endpoint to it. I really mm-hmm. don't. I had a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Peter Diamandis, and both of us have aspirations for extraordinarily long lives. And anyone who's been around Coach knows that my number for the years in my lifetime is 156, and I've been thinking this for going on 30 years now. And I've been thinking about for so long and so consistently that I can't think of any other endpoint age except 156. So I'm in my 70s now, but from a perspective standpoint, my 72 is probably equal to someone else's 35. And the reason is because I'm planning for a a lifetime that in years is twice as long as what most people would consider to be a normal lifetime. So consequently, I just don't relate to the actual number of years I've been alive, the same way that people generally would look at that. And I love knowing that you have a bigger future in terms of years as well as everything else. That, to me, is inspiring from a creative partnership standpoint. It's very exciting in terms of strategic coach. And who knows what podcast we'll be talking about when you're 156. Mm. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you.